Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchange church. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Listen, I'm going to start a new series. This is going to be just a short series. It's going to last a couple, two, maybe three weeks. And uh, I'm excited about this because one of the uh, objectional or irrational or easy to criticize things about our faith is this, okay? Now, hear me before you just walk out. Uh, you got to actually listen to what I say, and I say that just as, as some people walk out, but uh, we actually turn to God when bad things happen, believing that he could have kept those things from happening in the first place, Right? Are we crazy or are we naive? Um, Some people would probably argue yes to one or both of those. But in fact, this may be a dynamic that for some, some people, this may be the reason that they lost their faith. You know, when they started becoming a follower of Jesus, something along the, line, along the road happened. And this may be a reason that, that you lost faith to begin with. Something like that. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you, just between me, you, and the fence post, keep this private. But uh, I understand that. I get that. It makes sense to me. But it also may help you to know this, that the men... And the women who brought us the message of Jesus, they walked through similar valleys. They had unnecessary suffering. And they had many times unanswered prayers. And yet, they still believed. And yet, they still persevered. They prevailed. In fact, in a lot of cases, they they soared. They exceeded expectations, and I think C.S. Lewis was probably spot on. I don't know if you've read much of C.S. Lewis stuff. He's got some pretty good stuff. He's, he's just, he's brilliant at quotes, you know. He's, there's not many people that's easier to quote than C.S. Lewis. One of the things he says this, he wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain." So for the next few minutes, I want to actually talk about how he ends this statement, how he completes this thought. Maybe you've read it before, but he's talking about pain here, and he goes on and he says this, pain is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, you can take that how you want. Uh, I'm not going to force feed you this morning on that thought, but think about it. Pain is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world world. Maybe that's your story. Maybe you were kind of going along in life, minding your own business. Everything is good. Everything is is chill. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you get a call or something happens, something tragic, something ridiculously painful happens in your life, and it catches you off guard. You get some bad news, and you realize at that moment that your life is never going to be the same again, and you find yourself maybe for the first time ever, face-to-face with a God maybe you never believed in or a God that maybe you believed in as a child but gave up on, but you face this God face-to-face, and you've been probably believing ever since that event. So in that case, pain was, in fact, a megaphone that got your attention. Or maybe your story is the opposite of that, okay? The opposite, where there's, you, there's pain in the world, you see suffering in the world, and because you see all that, you begin to doubt God. You begin to doubt God because you don't understand why, if he's such a good God, come on, you've heard this before, right? If he's such a good God, how can such a good God allow that? And the point is, how can two different sides of the coin, when it comes to pain, intersect, but yet somehow come to the same type of conclusion about their faith when it comes to their experience with God and pain. They can arrive at two different conclusions. One, forcing you to turn to God. One, forcing you to turn away from God, all having to do with pain. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. 
if it's okay for the next few minutes. How many of you are familiar with this name? Admiral Jim Stockdale. Anybody remember? Okay. Uh, this is a, a great book, Good to Great. I don't know if you've ever read it. Uh, if you're kind of an entrepreneur, you're into building business or anything like that, Jim Collins has just a brilliant book. And this is not, uh, this is not just a church world type of book. This is just a great book. But in this book, I think somewhere in around chapter 4 or 5, he does uh, some interviews with Admiral Jim Stockdale. Now, Jim Stockdale, he was, uh, he was famous in the 90s. He was a, uh, actually ran for vice president back in the 90s. Uh, so those of you that are my age and older may remember that. Uh, I barely remember. I was like such a kid. Uh, so I barely even remember that. But uh, he was most famous because he was a prisoner of war. He was a, P he was a POW from the Vietnam War. He was actually the vice admiral in the Navy, okay? He was the highest-ranking United States military officer to be imprisoned in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the Vietnam War. So uh, while he was a, a POW, he was actually a POW for eight years. He was tortured over 20 times. Uh, he was tortured a lot of times because he refused to participate in the North Vietnamese propaganda machine. And so Jim, uh, Jim, Jim Stockdale actually took a razor blade and he disfigured his face so that they would not put him on camera. And so that's, that, that's this guy. And so Jim Collins, when he's writing this book, he sits down and he interviews uh, Jim Stockdale. And he asks him some questions, a lot of great questions. But he asks him probably some of the questions that you would have asked him. A question like this. Admiral Stockdale, how in the world did you survive eight years? Now, eight years is a long time. I have a daughter who's seven years old, uh, and I think back to eight years ago, and she's, that is a long time to be a POW. And he asked him, he says, how in the world did you survive? And here's what Admiral Stockdale said. He said, I never lost faith. In the end of the story. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I was just going to read that statement and then close in prayer so we could all get to uh, the restaurants before the Baptist. But I'm going to keep going here. <laughs> I'm going to keep going for just a minute. But he makes a statement and then he goes on and, and he continues and he explains what he's talking about. He says this. I never doubted not only that I would get out but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining moment of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Isn't that amazing? What, what an incredible statement. And then Jim Collins asked him this question. He says, okay, I get it. You know, this is later on in the interview. He says, I get it. You made it out. That is incredible. <laughs> but tell me about some of the people who didn't make it out. Who didn't make it out? And this is how Admiral Jim Stockdale answers that question. He says, oh, that's easy. The optimist. The optimist? Jim Collins asking. Well, you're going to have to explain that because that doesn't make any sense to me. And he says, well, the optimists were the ones who said, well, we're, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they would say, we're going to be out by Easter. Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And he goes on and he says this. Those men died of a broken heart. Then he turns to Jim Collins and he makes a statement. And I want you to hear this because this morning, this is really what this whole message and little mini-series we're going to do is kind of about thinking about... Uh, the environment that we live in today, the culture that we live in today. I want you to really put these things into perspective because he makes a statement that, that I want to take as our lesson. And he says this, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline, okay? You can't trade the faith for the discipline. You, you can't lose the faith in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. Okay? 
Now, I said all that because if you look this up and you, you Google these statements or whatever, this is oftentimes referred to as the Stockdale Paradox, okay? Now, a lot of you know what a paradox is. A paradox is a statement that on the surface uh, doesn't seem to make any sense, but when you explore it further, it actually proves itself to be true, okay? And so this paradox that we're talking about today that Jim Stockdale is referring to is the paradox that you have a hope. You have a hope, and it's a great hope, and he held on to that hope, but he didn't trade it and lose sight of the fact that he was living in a brutal reality, and so he continued to face the reality that he was living in. He was saying that you you can't let go of, of, of the the brutal facts just to go into hope because you have to keep them both. You have to hold both of them. Never give up hope, but also never deceive yourself about the current situation that you're in. Okay? Don't deceive yourself like everything is just roses. And I, that's a lot of the problem, I think, with the church today. They just try to, we just try to pretend that it doesn't exist, that we're all good. We're all good. And as long as we're all good, then it's all good, right? And that's not right. The reason that I bring this up is that Christianity and our faith that we live in, it actually comes prepackaged with a very similar paradox. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And it's this. It, the paradox is this, is that we have a hope and we have a future. Somebody say amen. Come on. We have a hope and we have a future. And it's beautiful. But it is tethered to a brutal fact. Everybody say brutal fact. To use his term, a brutal fact. We have a future and we have a hope, but it's tethered with a brutal fact. It comes as a package deal. And the problem for a lot of us Christians is we get so focused on the hope part that, that, that we forget about the brutal fact part. And we try to just pray away or obey away or faith away the problems in the world. And we try to not even address them because we have a hope. And the hope is all that matters. And that's not actually all that matters. It's a package deal. Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. You're going, you, you understand where I'm going if you'll hang tight. Hang tight with me. In fact, some versions of Christianity, maybe a version that you were raised in, uh, some versions of Christianity try to deny the brutal fact altogether. So let's begin with that. The brutal fact of Christianity is this, okay? So it's easy, it's easy to lose sight of, um, but, but if you lose sight of it, especially when things are going well, it can create confusion, it can create faithlessness, it can create despair when things are turned upside down. So here it is, okay? Let's face the brutal fact. There is a cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. Okay? That's the brutal fact. So we have hope, right? And the hope is good. But the brutal fact is that it comes tethered in just the world that we live in with, with this thing that's a cause and effect relationship between sin and and suffering, and, and we know this on a personal level because all of us have done bad things that we felt bad for and, and had consequences to some of those things and some of those decisions that we made. All of us have experienced uh, pain associated with certain behaviors, um, and if you're a Jesus follower, maybe use the word sin, okay, and, and John defines that for us, and, and he talks about sin as missing the mark, but let's just say that you use that, but we've all experienced consequences of personal sin. Can we agree with that? We've, we've all faced that. So uh, the brutal fact, the fact is that for many people to get their minds and hearts around this, that the relationship, the cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering goes beyond personal behavior. This is not about personal behavior. This is not about behavior modification. It is actual a global reality, okay? It's actually a global reality, and I'm going to explain that. The brutal fact is this. There is a global relationship between sin and suffering. This is the part that we oftentimes resist. We want to just hang on to the hope, the hope, the hope, the hope. 
The reason that we resist it is because it's not fair, and also it takes the control out of our hands because it's a global effect. It, it's, a, it's a global effect. It's bigger than, than just me. In fact, when sin entered the world, and this is what the Gospels teach us and tell us, when sin entered the world, it held the door open for sorrow. It held the door open for death. It held the door open for pain. It held the door open for suffering. And it held the door open for death. They all came right along with it when sin came into the world. And the cool thing about Jesus is that Jesus assumes this worldview, okay? He lives in this world. He assumes the brutal fact because Jesus' message was to never lose hope. We have a hope. We have a hope, and the hope is great. But his message was also right in the middle of the, the chaos that was going on in the world. He never forgot about that. But he came to show that it has nothing to do with personal sin. It's a global reality, a global effect that sin has had on our culture. And this was the paradigm that Jesus lived in. And he embraced that. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that that's kind of the, the lesson that they've taught us. So I'm going to give you a couple examples so some of you will stop looking at me like this. I'm going to give you a couple examples of, of what Jesus was teaching. And, and here's an example that John writes about. And John says that Jesus and his disciples, they were kind of trucking along. And it says this, uh, John writes this, as we went along, or as Jesus went along, um, he saw a man blind from his birth. <laughs> his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Sounds like a good question, right? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they understood, the disciples were thinking clearly that there is a relationship. There is a relationship between blindness or suffering or pain and sin. But they believed it to be a one-on-one -on -one correlation, okay? And in fact, this was their assumption that it had everything to do with a person that this man was blind. They had this assumption, okay? Here was their assumption. Their assumption was good things happen to good people and bad things happen to sinners. That's how they believed. It was their assumption, okay? And, and what they didn't understand or what they had lost sight of what was the fact that it was actually a global relationship between sin and suffering, not a one-on-one -on -one personal correlation between sin and suffering between sin and death. They, would, they weren't understanding that. So Jesus responds this way, and he says, well, you're wrong. You know, they asked the question, so who was it? Who, whose sin was it that this guy was born blind? <coughs> and Jesus says, well, you're wrong. Neither of them, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, what Jesus wasn't saying is Jesus wasn't saying that neither this man nor his parents have ever sinned. What Jesus was trying to say was that it was no one's personal sin that this man was born blind, okay? Jesus was saying this wasn't a personal one-on-one -on -one correlation. This was a global, there is a global cause and effect to sin that has caused blindness and suffering and pain and all. When sin entered the world, it held the door open for all these things to come right in with it. And Jesus is trying to get that across to these guys, that the presence of sin in the world is what resulted in illness. It resulted in this man's blindness. It was a consequence, but not the man or the parent's consequence. It was a global consequence. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? So he goes on to say this. <laughs> but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, let's think about that for a second. Jesus said that the purpose of this blindness that was not caused by Jesus, not caused by God, but it was caused by a global effect 
on the world. He says, listen, it was caused by this global effect of sin and it's going to turn into an illustration of the fact that I, the Son of God, have power over the global consequences of sin, which infers that I have the power over sin itself. Okay, you starting to get with me here? Starting to understand what I'm saying? So, so Jesus is painting them a picture, the problem that plagues every single one of us every single day is that God would use his power over the global consequences of sin to draw attention to himself. He goes on, he says this, he kind of preaches a little sermon here. He says that uh, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Because he's letting them know that the daytime is about to be over. Nighttime is coming when no one can work. And when Jesus says this, of course, the disciples probably look at each other. Like you're probably thinking, what in the world is he talking about? What does this even mean, Jesus? What does it mean? So, so Jesus begins to explain himself. He says this, John chapter 9, verse 5. He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While I'm in the world, what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate my power over the global consequences of sin because God, my Father, has power over the global consequences of sin. So while I'm in the world, I'm going to show you that I came to address not the pain and the suffering and the sorrow. I came to address the root issue, okay? That there is hope in the meantime because there is a brutal fact. The brutal fact that we must never lose sight of. And if we start to lose that, then we start to lose our faith. So on another occasion, this is another familiar story. I think I used this a few weeks ago in one of, one of my sermons, but Jesus is teaching in this really nice house. That they believe that it was a wealthy man's house because of the size of the house. Uh, he's got a crowd packed inside the house. So many people have gathered around that they're looking in the windows and they're looking in the doors. You can't even get in the house anymore. And there's a paralyzed man. And the friends, they had faith. They believed that Jesus could heal this paralyzed man, okay? Now, when we think of what that means, that they had faith to believe that Jesus could actually heal this paralyzed man, we believe what they believed, that healing comes in the form of not being paralyzed anymore, right? Ta-da, it's brilliant. Brilliant. These guys were thinking. And so they show up to the house, and they're trying to get this man to Jesus, and they can't get in. They can't get to the windows. They can't get to the door. It is just packed up. And so they climb up onto the roof, and they begin to dig through the roof, okay? They begin to tear away the roof, and they ultimately lower this paralyzed man's cot down at Jesus' feet. And Jesus sees the paralyzed man. He sees the faith of the guys who dropped him down. And in Mark chapter 2, verse number 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. To which the paralyzed man, still laying there paralyzed, had to say, that's not the reason I had dropped in. Okay? Right? And the guys that are on the roof are like, yeah, no, no, thank you, but that's not why we did this. You know, we, we actually were trying to bring him to you because he's paralyzed. Right? <laughs> thank you for this whole sin thing, but uh, you're not God. <laughs> and because when he makes that statement, the Pharisees go crazy. The Pharisees start freaking out because they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is blasphemous. Only God can heal, can forgive sin, right? Who forgives sin but God alone? He's putting himself in the place of God. And Jesus probably smiles at them when they say that. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's my point. That's exactly my point. I'm putting myself in the place of God because you need to understand I am God in a body. They don't get that yet, though, so he, he has to uh, help them out, and he asks them a question. This is not a trick question, but he asks them a really simple question. He says, okay, guys, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man laying at my feet? Your sins are forgiven, 
right? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. What Jesus is trying to do right here, and listen, pay attention to this, is he's trying to show them that there is a a connection. There is a relationship between the fact that this guy is paralyzed and sin. So Jesus brings the two together, and he says, which is easier, to say you're forgiven of your sin or to say get up and walk? But sin and the fact that this guy is paralyzed has nothing to do with personal sin. It's the global consequences of sin. And so Jesus responds this way. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man actually, to be honest with you, has the authority on earth to forgive sin. When he says that, they, they freak out. Listen, the Son of Man, you need to know this, the Son of Man has authority on earth to reverse the consequences of the global impact of sin on this world. Jesus is saying, I need you to know who you're dealing with this morning. Okay, I need you to know this. And and so Jesus is saying, I'm going to prove it to you. And how does he prove that he has the power over the global consequences of sin? It's pretty easy. He tells the man, get up, take your mat and walk. Go home. And what does the guy do? He gets up. He gets up, picks up his mat, and he goes home. And the crowd is blown away. People are blown away. They are in awe because at that moment they realize that something greater, bigger, more powerful than even the temple was here. That someone, think about this, someone more powerful than the global consequences of sin had arrived. Then years later, the Apostle Paul He steps onto the scene, and he kind of teases the same uh, concept out. And I told you I was going to give you several examples, so just bear with me here. And instead of illustrating it like Jesus did, he explains it. And here's how he explains it. He writes a letter to the church, uh, to the Christians in Rome. Okay, We call this the book of, of Romans. Okay, And this is a letter that he writes to the Christians that are living in Rome. And he says, listen, I need to give you the big idea, the big idea. This is what I need you to grasp, okay? Don't lose sight of this. We have a hope, and our hope is tethered to the the brutal fact. And the brutal fact is that we live in a world that is full of sin and shame and and sorrow and pain and death. And we can't lose, lose sight of either one of those. We've got to hold fast to both of those. And here's how Paul addressed this. He says, uh, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, he's talking about Adam, okay? Now, I'm going to pause and make this observation so you can understand. When Paul starts talking about sin, he starts talking about sin as an entity, okay? He starts to explain sin uh, the way we would explain um, energy or information, okay? Energy and information. Uh, You can't see it, but it's there. And just because you can't see energy and you can't see information, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, right? And so this is the way Paul, in this verse, this is how he starts addressing sin, okay? So he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, this entity, okay, this energy entered in um, through one man talking about Adam and death through sin, just the same illustration that I gave you all, all ago. As sin entered the world, it held the door open for suffering and pain and for sorrow and all these things and death to come right in along with it. He, he goes on, he says this, and in this way, death came to, everybody say all people. Death came to all people. Why? Because all sinned. Okay, death came to all people because all sin. Death and its allies marched through the world, and you can't pray it away. You can't faith it away. You can't obey it away. It's just a brutal fact. Are we with me? So we have this hope. 
But it's tethered together with this brutal fact that we live in a world that has sorrow and pain and suffering. This reality is hard for us to wrap our minds and wrap our hearts around. But if you divorce your hope in Christ from this brutal fact, you run the risk of losing your faith. And anyone who tells you otherwise or anyone who promises you a way around this is either trying to sell you something or uh, they've never read the New Testament or maybe they've never actually followed Jesus through the New Testament. We don't like this because it's not fair. It's not fair that we, and and some of you would like to put this label on yourself, we as, as good people have bad things happen to us. Why it's not fair that I do so many things right and I live in this world. It's, it's a brutal fact that's tethered with our hope. It's the world that we live in. And, and facts aren't fair. They're absolute. And they're true. We want there, and I get this, and I, I'm really the same way, we want there to be a one-on-one correlation when it comes to sin and suffering and bad things and good things, right? We want good things to happen to good people. That's, that's what we like. And, and you don't have to nod your head in agreement because I know that that's what you like because I like it too and that's the way we're built. As we see good people, we want good things to happen to good people. And when we see bad things, bad people, we don't really want good things to happen to bad people, right? And we think it's kind of unfair that good things keep happening to this bad person because they're such a bad person. Why good? In fact, we would almost, and I'm going to say it as nicely as possible, we would hope that bad things happen to bad people just so that they become good people, right? <laughs> I want just enough bad stuff to happen to this bad person. You need to be a good person. And that's kind of the way we look at it is we, we want there to be this one-on-one correlation, but that's not the way the world works. And here's what you need to know. Jesus assumed and Jesus taught that that's not how the world works. And, and if you've ever lost your faith, and this is huge, if you've ever lost your faith because somehow sin and suffering did not line up with your theology, then maybe you had the wrong theology to begin with. Okay? If you cling to the myth that somehow only good things happen to good people or bad things happen to bad people, if you cling to that myth, your faith will eventually be ground into dusk. But here's what you need to know. Christians, okay? Christians have never believed that God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. Christians have never believed that. Christians actually believe the opposite of that. Christians believe that the worst possible thing happened to the greatest possible person to ever live this earth. That's why as Christians, we don't believe that that bad things don't happen to good people because the worst possible thing did happen to the greatest person to ever live. So, Here's the question. Knowing that, and knowing that is kind of the foundation of what I'm saying this morning. Should we resist evil? Yeah. Yeah. Should we fight to solve the world's problems? Yeah. Should we try to alleviate pain and suffering in the world? Absolutely. In the end, will we win that battle? No. Because that's not our ultimate battle. Does that mean God doesn't care? No. Read the Gospels. We know God cares. But that's not the end of the story. See, there's a hope. And our hope is not solving solving the global consequences of sin. That's not why we have hope. That's not why we exist, to try to solve the global consequences of sin. Our hope is in a person who came to address the issue himself. And for him to solve the global consequences of sin. Which is actually not even illness. It's actually not even sickness. And it's actually not even pain. Okay? He took care of it. The brute fact of Christianity is that there is a relationship between sin and sorrow and ultimately death. And the Apostle Paul, he continues and he writes this. 
He says, for if by the trespasses, or it's translated sin, if, the, if by the sin of one man, meaning Adam, death reigned through that one man, okay? Now, don't miss this. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, I'm not pulling any punches here. I'm going to give it to you directly. This, you live in a world where death reigns, okay? So just face that fact. He says this, for if by the sin of one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provisions of grace and the gift of righteousness. Now, I'm going to stop right for a second and now look at that word. Now, I want to define these two words for you just for a minute and put them into context. In context, grace that he says right here, grace is a reference to the ability to endure. And then you look at righteousness. Righteousness in context, in this context, is uh, the fact that our relationship with God is secure. That's what's the way it's translated. And so he said, if death reigned through one man, Adam, and brought sin into the world, how much more will those of us who have the ability to endure, okay, and a relationship with your heavenly Father that is secure, how much more then will we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Come on, think about that. Those of us who are believers, those of us who understand this, we know that there's been a grace or the ability to endure the brutal fact that we have hope, but we do live in an ugly world at times, and we can't lose sight of those, and we can't just throw all the bad out and just say, well, we're just going to hope, 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 hope. We live in a reality where we have to face these things. But what, what Paul is saying here is that we have been given a grace so that we can endure these things, and we've been given righteousness the ability to understand that our salvation is secure and so our hope is locked in and so we can live not just live but we can thrive we can reign in life we can reign in life through one man Jesus Christ because of what he did for us this brutal fact is not that bad Because, yeah, we have a brutal fact, and we live in a crazy world right now. And that's what I wanted to talk about is (laughs) I I had a phone call a couple weeks ago, and I was asked this question. What is going on? Why is God not dealing with all the evil in the world? What's the church's responsibility? (laughs) The church's responsibility is hang on to the hope, the promise that we have, And in the meantime, let's thrive. We have been given grace to endure. We have been given a promise. And we are not just going to make it through this thing, suffering along. And by the time we get out on the other end, all four tires are going to be blown out. and We're out of gas. We're just putting along. No, we're going to come flying out of this thing because of the promises that we have. We have to embrace the paradox that sin will have its way today but not forever, okay? Sin is in the world, and there's a global consequence to that. Or to perhaps uh, paraphrase Jesus' words, kind of put a spin on it, it would go like this. We do not reign in life by devoting our lives to preserving our lives. Okay? If that's the win, then you can never win. We actually reign in life by following the one who offered real life and the ultimate and final solution for sin. The amazing thing about all this that I'm talking about is the New Testament authors were so clear and consistent on this. Jesus did not offer himself the final solution to sin from the comforts of his own home. He didn't stay up in heaven and go, you know what, I'm just going to offer this great solution to sin. He actually came down and he became one of us to experience everything that we have experienced. See, God wasn't setting up in heaven just going, hey, this is what you should do, this is what you should do. And you go, you, have you ever dealt with somebody like that? They're telling you, you know, you, like you go through a divorce 
and they're telling you how you need to handle that divorce, and you're like, uh, you've actually never been divorced. You have no idea what I'm going through. You have no idea what, you ever dealt with people like that? That wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't uh, just point out of heaven and go, hey, here's how you deal with all these issues. Jesus came down, and he became one of us. The gospel writer, John, <coughs> he begins one of the most famous gospels with these words. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came down. He faced what we faced. He felt what we felt. The Apostle Paul, he puts his spin on it, and he says it this way in uh, Philippians 2.6. He says, Jesus, being in very nature God. In other words, Jesus became God in a body. Okay? He was God in a body. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, Jesus never cheated. Okay? Jesus never played the God card. Jesus never uh, tried to, to be above everybody else and use his, his power, his authority as God. But he came and he experienced life just the way you have experienced life. And he experienced the same kind of life that I've experienced. But he went even further and Apostle Paul elaborates and he says this. But he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He stayed on track, and he lived this world, and he faced the temptations that you face, and he faced life, and he lived, and he humbled himself, and he became obedient even to death, because one day, you and I, we're going to face death, but Jesus didn't even face the kind of death that we're going to face, even death on a cross, even the worst imaginable kind of death. The author of Hebrews, he comes along later, and he puts his spin on it. Here's how he says it. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus here, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Now here's the implications. The implication being that weakness is actually a permanent part of the human condition. Weakness being you can't pray it away, you can't faith it away. You can't obey it away. But he says, here's the good news. Your high priest being Jesus, the one that you actually go to in prayer, he actually understands. And not only does he understand, he can empathize with you. And he continues and he says this, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Then here's the best part. He says, in the meantime, in the meantime, in the messy middle time, he says, you're to do exactly what your first century brothers and sisters did when they lived in the conflict, the conflict of there's a future hope, but there's also a brutal reality, a brutal fact that we have to face every day. In a world racked by pain and illness and suffering, it's the same thing. I've seen this happen dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I've seen people, I've actually done funerals of people. We did one, uh, my wife and I, last year, year before last, uh, of twin girls, and one of them made it and one of them didn't. And watching the pain of the mom and dad as we laid one of their little girls to rest. Unbelievable. The pain and suffering. Or watching... Children have to bury their parents. The pain and the suffering that comes with that, absolutely unbelievable. The thing that I've seen hundreds of times is people, when they're faced with extraordinary suffering or when they're suppressed or surprised by grief, surprised by loss, here's the invitation when you're in that situation. He says, here's, here's how you live in that messy middle, because we have a hope, okay? Don't forget that. He's saying, hang on to hope. We have a hope. But in, in the meantime, in the messy middle, you're going to face loss. You're going to hurt. You're going to have pain so unbelievable. And it's not going to seem fair. It's not going to seem right. And, and Jesus is saying, I came and I lived in the middle of it. I felt that. I get it. 
I get it. And this is not about you. This is a global consequence of sin. But he says, listen, here's how you live in the middle of it. The writer of Hebrews says this. When you're in the messy middle, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, the New Testament authors, they had their feet firmly planted on the soil of suffering. They understood the kind of world that we live in. They faced it. and They wrote about it. They watched it. Most of the writers that we, we read about and that we quote actually died in a suffering, suffering world to preserve the gospels of Jesus, to preserve the life of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews says, when you're going through suffering and pain, when you realize I'm caught in the messy middle, there is a hope, but there's a brutal fact that you can't get around. And he says, come to your heavenly Father with confidence, and here is God's promise to you. In the middle, in the middle of the fact that we do live in a messy world, he said, here's God's promise to you. You will receive mercy, and you will receive grace, and you will receive grace, and you will receive mercy. You're going to receive grace, and you're going to receive mercy all in your time of need. And then, once again, the Apostle Paul, you know, Apostle Paul, he's awakened by the megaphone of pain that C.S. Lewis talks about. Because he's on his way to Damascus, and a lot of you know that story, and he is, he is just awakened by, by the Lord. Um, He's actually on his way to persecute Christians, but he puts it into context for us, and he writes these really powerful words. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, and he's, he's saying this, that no one can avoid this, okay? I consider that our present sufferings that we're all going to go through are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, we have this hope. And then we have this brutal reality. He says, listen, I consider that everything that we're going through right now, it can't even be compared with what we're going to have. The, the glory that will be revealed in us because we know, we have confidence that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the very present time. And he goes on, he writes this, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Talking about those of us who are Jesus followers, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And then these next words are so powerful. He sets it all with, with this as the backdrop. With that all in mind, he says, for in this hope... For in this hope, not the hope, this is not our hope. Our hope is not that everything's going to work out in the end. <laughs> our hope is not that eventually the suffering is going to stop. Our hope is not that sickness is going to eventually stop. He says, but our hope, our hope that one day we'll be with Jesus. He says, our ultimate hope that Jesus came to this earth, not only to die for our sins, but to demonstrate that he has the power over the global consequences of sin. Jesus took care of that. He dealt with that. And we have to live in this tension of the messy middle of a hope uh, that we have a future and a confidence in, while at the same time acknowledging and embracing the type of world that we live in. Christians need to stop hiding from this world and embrace it. This is the world we live in. You know, the, the, the days of, uh, that we're living in now are the days the church should be the most full. Right? Because we have this hope and our hope is awesome and our hope is secure. We, we've been given the ability to endure. And so he goes on and when sin entered this world, death was right on its heels. And this is the age when the consequences of sin, they run their course. And not even our Savior was an exception 
to the consequences of what that looked like. Because when Jesus walked this earth, he saw that. He dealt with it. He came face to face with it. I mean, literally, sin in the form of, of angry, evil people looking him in the face. He dealt with it. So did God cause, cause all of this? No. Will God use it? Absolutely. He will use it like a megaphone to rouse the deaf world. To get us to look up and to reign. Not survive, but to reign. To thrive. To live our best life. I, I, and this is just... I am so anti, one of my pet peeves is the naysayers, okay? The gloom and doom people. I can't handle it. I just can't. This is our best life right here. You got one shot. YOLO, YOLO, baby, right? You got one shot. And I'm not going to sit here and just whine and complain and think, oh, my poor kids. No, I'm going to give them the best possible because here's why. I have a hope. My hope is awesome, and God has also given me the ability to endure and understand that I am secure even in this messy middle, even with the dumb stuff that we have to hear and watch and, and deal with in our world. It doesn't freak me out because my hope is secure, but I'm not so caught up on my hope that I ignore and pretend that nothing in the world is going on around me. I am the change. I am the license to change. I'm the difference. I'm the, and you as the church, we are the difference. And, and we're not supposed to just get so fixated and focused on the hope that we forget that there's real consequences to global sin. We are the change. One day, the world as we know it will be no more. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no, be no more death. Amen? But not today. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Again, C.S. Lewis says it so eloquently when he wrote these words. He says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. In other words, if I'm imagining a world and there's something in me that longs for something better. He says, if I find within myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I, is that you, is that we were made for another world. We were made for another world. So maybe, just maybe, Admiral Stockdale, Jim Stockdale, was right when he said this. We must never lose faith in the end of our story. We must never lose faith in the end of our story. And my friends, you know, you may not like to hear it, but this is not the end of our story. We're not at the end of our story. We have story left to go, and so let's not lose faith in the end. Let's look to the end as, as he sat there in that that prisoner of war camp that I talked about earlier and he endured for eight years thinking about the end and thinking about what it was going to be he never lost hope but he also wasn't blinded to the realities that we have confidence in God that God is for us not against us that God does care and that God is addressing the global consequences of sin that there's a bigger picture going on around us that he loves us and he is so in love with you, the ones of us that are left in the wake of the consequences of what sin can do as sin has entered into the world. And it brings pain, and it brings sorrow, and it brings death. But Jesus saw that, and Jesus chose this. He chose to wade in and experience that with us. And he waded in and he gave us an example of how to live in the messy middle. Jesus lived it. He lived right in the middle of ugliness. I mean, I, I hear people say this, you know, all the time. Man, I, our world has never seen 
anything like this so ugly in the hate. And I'm like, are you kidding? Just pick up history books. <laughs> this isn't the first time. In fact, one of the ugliest times ever in our world, ever. Jesus lived in it. <laughs> he didn't just live in it. He thrived. He thrived loving unconditionally. He thrived just giving and giving and giving. Listen, our current circumstances are just another reminder that one day God will, in fact, make all things new. If I find within myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that maybe I was not made for this world. You know? Maybe there's something else that I need to keep my hope fixated on. And my hope is. So COVID-19. So this election. So the, all the protests and the, the tragedies that have happened. Maybe. Maybe C.S. Lewis was right when he said that it's a megaphone. A megaphone to wake us up. To, to get our attention so that we can see that things are going on. Don't lose our hope, but also don't forget the brutal reality that we live in. And as the church, as sons and daughters, I mean, we are joint heirs with Jesus. We are to be the agents of change. In the middle of all this craziness, to be the agent of change. And you know what? I've, I've practiced this. I've, I've practiced this. I was at uh, my son's baseball game the other night. And I was listening to a couple people have a pretty heated debate. And I wanted so bad to jump in with this one person and just demolish the other person. They were so loud and opinionated. And I had a good line in my mind. I had a good one. And I thought, that's not my job. My job is to bring the two together. My job is to be the, the buffer in the middle that, that has a hope and hasn't lost sight of the brutal fact of consequences of sin in this world that I live in. The only question is, if this is a megaphone, to arouse a deaf world, are we listening? Are we responding? Will we respond? I'm going to pray this morning. If you would, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. God, that you've provided us. Thank you for promising that grace and mercy. Thank you for providing that grace and mercy in our time of need. And Father, for the men and for the women, for the students, the teenagers, the senior adults, or whoever it might be who needs a big dose of grace and mercy today, Father, I pray that you would provide that for them through somebody that they talk to or through something that they hear or through the music or, or whatever it might be that they would know and have confidence that our New Testament authors had. That they would have the confidence to know that you are with them and not, not only that you are with them, God, but you are for them and that you're giving them the grace that they need to endure through whatever it is that they're facing. Loss in their family, tragedy, whatever circumstances, God, that you're giving them grace to endure through that. Help them to see their situation the way that you see it, God. Give them eyes to see themselves the way that you see them, God. Give them eyes to see you for who you truly are. Father, we pray all of this, God, in the matchless name of Jesus who, who suffered and paid a price for our sin so that we could live the most abundant life possible. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.